The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. My name is Joel. Um, it's good to see a lot of new faces here this morning. Uh, the today's reading is going to be from Acts chapter 14. Um, if you don't know, there are Bibles underneath each of the tables um, over here in the in the corners. Uh, if you want to follow along, um, or otherwise use your phone, or I think it's going to be on the screen as well. Um, and this is a scripture passage written uh, by one friend uh, to another friend. Um, because he wanted a friend to believe in Jesus. So uh, with that short introduction, let's, let's read the word of God. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their, mind, their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and to stone them. But they found out about it and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bowls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown you kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. And then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word of Ep in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And may God bless the reading of his word. 
may have been the longest passage of Scripture some of you have read this past week, maybe the last couple of weeks, but I want you to know that Joel read that in under just a, about three or four minutes. It doesn't take us long to really engage in the story of what God is doing. Um, and just in those few moments, I think we really were able to find ourselves um, almost with a posture of, okay, I really now want to know what's going on in this story. I mean, Joe was reading it in such a way that I'm just being drawn in more and more. And I was like, why didn't I have Joel standing in my office reading this to me while I was studying it? Because it, it seemed to come alive hearing it coming out of somebody else's mouth. Um, and I think that's a lot of what Scripture was intended in the first place, but that's not the sermon for today. Um, I have, uh, I've had several friends in the last few years that have struggled um, uh, with depressions or bipolar disorders. Um, and I don't know, some of you I've seen, you, I mean, immediately many of you just nodded. Like, you, I just said something that you can relate to very quickly. There's been a lot in, um, in our culture, in our news, and even amongst churches recently of saying, how do we help people that are struggling with depression? How do we help people that are going through different levels of mental illness? And, um, and how do we do this? And so um, I had a friend in Georgia that had a severe case of bipolar. And, and I remember sitting at a table with him over lunch, and he was talking to me about the things that he was having to go through and the medication that he was having to, to take. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes, and he says, Ellis, I'm tired of not having any highs anymore. And I'm tired of not experiencing any lows anymore. I experience everything the same. He's like, I want to get excited about something. I want, to, I want to cry over something. And he's like, but I feel like when I'm on my medication, I'm just flatlined. And he's like, I just feel like some calm person just walking around. And if I won the lottery, I'd be like, I won the lottery. Or he's like, he was a huge Redskin fan. He's like, and I feel, well, the Redskins haven't had much to cheer about as of late. But he's like, even if they did have something exciting to cheer about, he's like, I can't even get excited about my sports teams because there's just no more highs and there's no more lows. And, it, and that thought hit me in this passage of Scripture. And I'm not sure why. It might be because we've had so much discussion about mental health and, and even Pastor George and Pastor Bill and I here in Baltimore just and other pastors are talking about what can we do in our churches to strengthen that. So it might have just been heavy on my mind. But I began to think, I think this is what's happening in church. We just have this like deadline. Like We, we experience everything the same. There's no more highs. There's no more lows. It's like everything is flat. Like We come to church and it's just all right. Like, we're not excited about anything. It's, not, it's, like, it's not like getting your heart rate up. Like, and let's be honest, there's times where you could be doing no physical activity and it's just visual or mental stimulation and your heart race can race, right? And some of you will experience that later today when the Ravens take on the Browns. Uh, or, well, actually, it's kind of hard to say that because most of you aren't from Baltimore and you really cheer for other teams. And so, but just imagine your team, you know, there's none of our teams that are guaranteed that are going to win today. And some of you are going to be like, yes, and others you are going to be in the misery. No, but your heart rate's going to be elevated because it's a high or a low, right? And so it's like for us at church, why do we not experience highs and lows anymore? And I believe that partly of it, part of the reason is, is that we've taken out all the extremes in our, in our experiences with Jesus. We're no longer so bold with our faith that we get persecuted, I guarantee you, your heart would elevate worshiping God if there were people outside ready to stone us. Right? I, I also believe that there's this, we're not seeing the signs and wonders. Because some of you in here today, 
if somebody actually came in here crippled and the Lord would know it would bring great joy to me to be able to say to them, stand up, then I promise you that if it looked real and it happened real and it was going on, that there would be a little bit different level of adrenaline amongst us if it wasn't just something. But see, there's now so much skepticism. So many guys that sell miracles on television or will sell different hopes or dreams. And because of that now, as a, as a group of people, we're pretty just flat. We're too fearful of the highs, and we're too fearful of the lows, and we're scared to begin to even express ourselves in those ways. So what is taking away our highs and lows? I began to think about that as I reflected on this chapter 14. What is starting to take it away? I think it's because nobody's getting healed and nobody's getting stoned. There are a lot of people in Baltimore getting stoned, all right? Let's just call it out, all right? That's not what I'm talking about, all right? Some of you, I can see the look on your face. You were already going there, so I'm calling out the distraction. I'm talking about physical stones being thrown at you, all right? So Paul's message in Antioch in the synagogue was something that's become very common in the book of Acts. Peter's message in Acts chapter 2 and in other places in the first eight chapters usually did a couple of things. When Paul spoke to the synagogue in Antioch, when Peter spoke on the streets of Jerusalem, two responses have been rhythmic through the first 13 chapters of the book of Acts. Some people are thrilled and other people are angry. There's very little difference in between. That's generally the response that's happening as this first century church is making sense of how they talk about Jesus and the resurrection and then the ascension and then the spirit coming and then the powers working out. It generally caused some other emotion other than, okay, that's nice. And so as we begin to look through Acts 14, we're beginning to see that the main message that is emerging from us out of all of this ancient promises of God, that they were all being fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah for Israel and then for the whole world. And so the problems that were starting to take place in the synagogues was that they initially came in and started hearing about the one God, we agree, and then the Messiah, we agree. Oh, by the way, the Messiah was Jesus. Wait a minute, now I might not agree. Right? And so even from Jew to Jew at first, the things that they were talking about, there were a lot of similarities and a lot of things that they were like, yes, I can agree with that. But then at some point they began to start to disagree. And then there were other people that were saying that the laws weren't going away. And, it, and this is a lot, a lot in that that we're not going to have time to get into today. But here's one of the things that started to happen to the people in what I would call pagan faith, as well as in the Jewish faith that were happening in first century Acts. So this is common in both. The pagans had a multiplicity of gods, and they were all good as long as you picked one and you were faithful to that God. You worshiped that God. That God would bring you grain. That God would bring your sunshine. That God would, and they were totally okay with that. But to say to a pagan, no, there is only one God, was very offensive. And so the Jews had been saying that for generations, right? It wasn't just a new Christian thing. Part of the Jewish nation's call to the world was representing the creator, and we're going to hear more about that in just a minute. But then the message to the Jews was, oh yeah, now the Messiah has come, and everything that has been promised to you is now available to the world for them just in sheer grace. And now both pagan and Jew don't feel so special anymore. 
And I just want to say this. This is something that we all struggle with. We all want to feel special. And if our theology is not lined up with Jesus, we are going to not feel very special quite often. And so part of the struggle that you and I have is many times our sins that we're involved in make us feel special. And so when we start to confront those, then we don't feel so special anymore. And then sometimes it might be wrong thinking that makes us feel special. And then when those confronted, we don't feel special anymore. Sometimes the conviction comes, people repent, we move forward. Other times the conviction comes and we get angry. And then we're not quite moving forward. I feel like this passage in Acts 14 is the bedrock for why we do church the way that we do it here in Baltimore City. And I'll explain that more as we get to the end as he talks about elders. But how might, how, how might we, our church, our, our, us right here, how might we go about a more apostolic witness in our community? Like this is what this is about. And most of us don't understand apostolic and we don't understand witness quite like this. And so let me begin to help us understand this a little bit. Because what is happening here is that Paul and Barnabas are going in and they're, they're giving an apostolic witness. And they're going into a synagogue to do so. And I love what N.T. Wright says here. Let me, let me share this quote from him. And it's going to be on the screen for you. For a start, it is important to make sure we really are announcing. Now look, this is an apostolic witness. This is what I'm defining for you. That we're announcing and by living... Uh, in living by the gospel itself, the full message about Jesus as the risen Son of God, fulfilling God's ancient promises for the benefit of the whole world, offering forgiveness of sins, and the hope of God's new world. And then he added this. This is not my words, but I thought it was really funny from a brilliant theologian. Not just pie in the sky when you die. And he says, if we really sort that out, that's one step in the right direction. So if you and I are wanting to know more and more about what an apostolic witness is, it is you and I understanding the gospel itself, how it came to fruition in Jesus, what promises it came uh, through for everybody for, how our sins are forgiven, and how God wants to do something new in this world. And so much of that is what's taking place. Now, I need to talk about a couple other things so that we can lay a foundation for understanding for this chapter, because so much of this chapter is based on something that we don't hear a whole lot in this chapter. But in the first 13 chapters, and then it's hinted at in here, is that these disciples were praying and fasting. Some of us are like, I have melatoned, or like I have flatlined my faith, because you realize when you pray and when you fast, you bump up against the extremes. I want that to set in just for a moment. A lot of us don't pray regularly because we've tried it, and life got crazy. We started hearing things that we were asked to obey, that we were like, wait a minute, that's going to change my life, and I don't know if I'm ready to do that. Or we bumped up against friends and family that didn't understand it, and they started to push back. They might not throw physical stones, but it felt like furniture was coming next, right? And so it became something where if we're not careful, we, we, we will leave out the prayer and fasting part, but this Paul and Barnabas believed in prayer and fasting so much that they, that they would look at an audience like this, they would pray and fast after just being there for a couple of days, and they'd go around saying, okay, you're an elder, you're an elder, you're an elder, come up here, I'm going to lay hands on you, and I'm going to leave you to deal with these people. We're going to talk more about how crazy that is in just a minute. 
all right? And Lana's like, that's at the end of your notes. How are you staying on track? (laughs) And the other thing that I think is important, it's not just prayer and fasting. You and I need to understand synagogue. Because so much of us in our Western thinking, we're not Jewish. We're, we don't come from Jewish backgrounds. There are a few of us in here that are from Jewish backgrounds, and when you say synagogue, you know it's more than just a place of worship. It was a place for community. It was a place for life. It was a place where all of the places in the world that were broken were talked about as how could God put it back together. They talked about their local politics. They talked about their local government. They talked about the ways that the well wasn't producing enough water. They would talk about ways of in, in, in bringing trade in and out. I mean, the synagogue was more than just a place where they would sit at the Moses seat and bring out a scroll and read the scroll of Isaiah to the audience and then to say, what did that prophet mean? So there was so much time of the day that people would sit there because they were trying to work it out. They weren't just waiting for an eternal promise. They were like, how does that promise take shape right now? And so Paul here is stepping into what I would refer to more as a public square. It's a public place. It's a place where people are gathering. If it was us here in Baltimore, what would that then look like? Where do our people gather on a regular basis to talk about the things that are important? It could be at your place of employment. Think about it. Where's the geographic place in your office or where your lab is where people stand around and talk about what's been in the news in the last week? Where's the place where you're finding your neighbors gathering? Is it trivia night at the local pub? Is it some other party night, that some theme night that might happen that if you show up in your pajamas you get a free egg sandwich, you know? I mean, there's some crazy things that some of our local establishments do to get everybody to come in, right? And it's like, maybe is that the public place where Paul and Barnabas would walk in today and begin to engage and teach people about the hope that we found in Jesus Christ? He begins to walk into this synagogue, and he's talking to them about that for which they have longed for. And he's saying to them, it is now here. He's saying to them, and it doesn't look like what you think it does. Some of you might want to actually write that phrase down. I have it on the slide for you. You might want to, because part of what we are trying to say to people, or the reason we are gripped in fear not to talk, is because we don't know how Jesus is the answer to what we're longing for. So how can we tell somebody that Jesus is the answer for what we're longing for when we don't even feel like he's the answer for what we're longing for? But Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14 were 100% convinced that Jesus was what everybody was longing for. So I began to think, just based on what I've heard in the news in the last week, what is our society here in America? I'm not even thinking about other nations right now. I'm just totally slendering it down just a little bit. Is to what are we hearing that people are longing for? People are longing for peace. People are longing for justice. People are longing for freedom. People are longing for health. People are longing for love and to satisfy the hunger of their heart. That's what you're hearing over and over and over again from people around us. And for Jesus, how do we satisfy the hunger in our life that no amount of money, no fine house, No car, no luxury vacation, no love affair will ever reach. No affirmation of man or woman will ever reach. 
We are looking for others to affirm our life when the King of kings and the Lord of lords is saying to you and I, you are mine. But yet, that God, the creator, sustainer, and life giver, is the one speaking to you and I that you are loved and cherished and adored and perfect in his eyes. And he's saying that to us, but we are rather having another voice. Well, God might be saying that, but the ladies around me aren't, or the men around me aren't, or the people in power aren't. And we've got to get to the place where we're turning our ears. And I'm coming back to N.T. right here just for a minute. He said this, and I love what he says. He says, and the task of the church, that's us, right? The church isn't the building. Like, we could not be in a more non-traditional building right now. But when we had the old bar over here, it looked like a nightclub more than it does even now, right? And for those of you that have been around eight or nine years, you remember we used to gather in that little upper room over the life of Riley's, and I used to preach in front of a Guinness flag, all right? And as in the task of the church, though it certainly goes much wider and deeper than this, at least includes the following, that we should, in prayer and with wisdom, be able to tell the story of our world, our increasingly neo-pagan society, which just means our new pagan society in terms of the long history of promises that we've clung on to and the pledges we have made and broken. We should be prepared to think it all the way through so that we can tell the story to people so they know it's their story. But the problem is, is that we're not convinced it's our story, so when we tell them it's their story, they're like, well, why isn't it your story? Because we're still trying to make sense of how Jesus truly could be the Messiah that does change everything. The story of our heart that we are learning to tell must end with Jesus Christ. I, I think we'll notice here in this passage as Joel was reading it that when he was getting ready to get stoned by the pagans, they actually, he had to cut that part out because he was beaten half dead and drug out of the city. So he never gets to talk about the hope he had in Jesus, but we'll talk about that in just a minute. But what we need to understand that is in Jesus Christ, and I need you guys to hear this when I say this, in Jesus Christ, are all the hidden treasures. In Jesus Christ are every hidden treasure that you and I want, you and I desire, you and I need in relationship, in life, in economics, in education, in peace, in hope, in justice, in mercy, in kindness, in love, in compassion. All of those hidden jewels are tied up in Jesus Christ. When you begin to continue to look at this, everything that we are hungry for is only satisfied in Jesus Christ. So for those of us in here that are hungry for possessions, the only way that hunger is ever going to be satisfied is if you truly understand Jesus Christ. For those of you that are hungry to have doctorate degrees and multiple degrees behind your name to gain respect, I just want to tell you this. The only place that that hunger is ever truly going to be quenched is when you truly understand who Jesus Christ is. We are not going to satisfy any drive or any desire in us, whether it is sexual, whether it is mental, whether it is physical, whether it's a goal and a career and you have a path that you want to get to. It doesn't matter what it is. If Jesus Christ isn't what we're hungry for, you will be unsatisfied. You will be actually left hurting because you will realize that that is not what's going to fill you. 
So can now, let me step back out of that just for a minute and put you in Paul and Barnabas' shoes. Can you now see why some of the Jews are now rallying against him and why some of the pagans are rallying against them? Because he's starting to share with them the truths of how this line of faith or this trend of thought is going to leave you empty and now it's only Jesus. Right? There's a reason why this doesn't necessarily deserve just a flat line common teaching where it's like, okay, was nice thoughts, Pastor Ellis. Thank you very much. But it should generate in us a little bit of adrenaline. Like, why does this rub me the wrong way? Why is this making me agitated? Why is this something that I'm struggling with? Why do I want to get up and leave right now? Might be because the room is really warm, right? But what we find is, is that this early church was growing because they had sticks and stones thrown at them, thrown at them. And they were having these moments where warring opinions were happening. And there would be nothing greater in here when we were having a difference of theological opinion where God says, all right, I'm going to show who's right. And the person that was right could be like, boom, look at that wonder. Right? Wouldn't that be pretty awesome? It's like you see two people debating on one of the topics that are controversial, and then God just eventually strolls in and he's like, all right, you guys want to know who's right? Watch, I'm going to light this person up. They're just glowing. Man, that would be, I would love that. But let me tell you something. I think God can still do those things. But the problem is we've become so comfortable and just common that we're scared of the extremes. If God was to show up, number one, I think most of us would have a heart attack and we would not even be walking out of the room. Much like in the Old Testament when God spoke publicly to the nation of Israel, all cried out, don't ever let him do that again. Right? Because if the Holy One ever spoke to us, we would quake in our skin. And so many of the disciples in the New Testament followed Jesus, not because they wanted to, but because God said, follow me. Why else would Peter just drop a net and go? The Son of God, the Holy One himself said, follow me. How could you disobey that? Put a couple of things on some slides for you here. I just want to kind of go through them. And of course, it is no good at all for us to simply go around and say it. We have to live it. We have to create and sustain communities where this life is being lived in such a way that we speak of it when we're obviously telling the truth. This is the deal, is that so many times... When we speak about Jesus, we have nothing in our life that proves that it's true. I challenged our cup family Sunday night. Um, I'm going to invite you in. If you notice, there's a few art pieces that are now illuminated on the walls, and we have one more that UPS forgot to deliver parts for, and so we're waiting for them, so that's not complete yet, so we didn't put the whole thing out, but we had portions of it out for the Covenant family. But I had the lights in that corner off over here, and so they're going around looking at the art and talking about it through a talking sheet, just talking about different things and emotions that count it all joy or consider it pure joy when, and there's a whole bunch of negative things in fine print over there. And then when you start looking at the Mark 8 teaching we gave at the beginning of September, and they started talking through that, and then my question to them was, who's left out when we get this wrong? Because there's a piece of art in the room that I didn't pay any attention to, and that's our needs board. 
because this art looks really cool and attractive. This art piece art looks cool. So people are drawn to that, but that piece of art looks nice and you can appreciate it, but it's like, all right, I'm, I'm not drawn to that. It wasn't even illuminated right. And so when you and I mess up discipleship, When we get our eyes off of Jesus, let me tell you who the one group that misses out the most because of our messing around or our conflict or our dissension, it's the poor. When you and I waste our time fighting with one another, disagreeing on things or not working things out or not or 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 holding on to things that that we shouldn't be, the people that miss out the most are those that need the church to be physically alive to them that need for us to be able to walk towards them. But so the early church, on many occasions, we read as Paul was working out, especially in the Corinthian church, he was helping them mature and to grow, but saying, hey, look, I'm coming by to collect an offering for the poor. So don't keep messing around in all these other areas. Work out your junk because we've got other people and other missions because God's kingdom is breaking in. And we're telling people God's kingdom is breaking in. But there are a lot of people sitting around saying, it doesn't feel like God's kingdom's coming. But yet, if they had food on their table, they had clothes on their back, and they had child care, and they had education, and they knew people loved them, they might be, wait a minute, God's kingdom might actually be coming my way. And that is so funny. I got the hourglass of death on my notes right now. So I'm going to now just wing the ending. As you begin to walk from the middle of Acts chapter 14 to the end of Acts chapter 14, what you and I are going to begin to find is that Paul and Barnabas are now accused of being Zeus and Hermes, which is very common in this part of Turkey. And because of that, did you guys notice that they they show up and Paul... A cripple, which I think if you look in the book of Acts, he loves healing those that are maimed more than anybody else. And when he begins to do that, they, they, they already have flower wreaths prepared for a parade. I don't know if any of that jumped out to you. They already had the recipes ready for a party. They were ready to just step into it and jump down the street and to go because they were looking for gods to manifest them in men which was what they had in their beliefs about Zeus and Hermes, and they call Paul Hermes because why? He was the one talking. And so they were tying it to their mythology. And so he's walking around, and next thing you know, a priest from that temple says, they're coming to visit us, and they're all marching down the street and having a happy old time. They even have animals ready for a barbecue. Like, how Easily were they prepared to celebrate and interact with their gods. And the whole time, Paul and Barnabas are going down the street saying to one another, um, didn't we come here to tell them that all this is not necessary? So could you imagine them trying to calm that procession down? I mean, this isn't just a flatline story in the book of Acts 14 that's very non-emotional. There is a massive parade happening, and Paul and Barnabas are now trying to say, Stop! Slow it down a little bit. We want you to know. And they went back to the story of the Jewish people. That's why I loved how N.T. Wright, when he was talking about the apostolic ministry, went back to talk about the origins of how God had a holy nation, a holy people that were supposed to be saying to the world, there is only one God. He's the creator, the sustainer of life. And so they're starting with that gospel foundation that's come, which they could, they could have just been Jewish missionaries at that point. 
because they were just telling the narrative of how God was showing himself through the people of Israel, but now how it was inbreaking into their world, and they didn't have to have Zeus. There was no more need for Hermes or any other gods of Aphrodite or whatever, because all of that was now complete in the God of Israel, the Yahweh, the creator, the sustainer, the life giver. And so they're starting to share this, and now the crowd's like, what? They actually, it's not in there. But then what happens? Jewish antagonizers come from other cities where they've already preached, and they're so ticked at Paul and Barnabas that they show up. And we don't have time to talk about that, but that whole argument is based upon the foundation of grace. Because these Jewish antagonizers were okay with Jesus, but they wanted everybody to go through the Jewish purification laws. And Paul had already addressed that. And we'll find in January during our week of prayer and fasting as we walk through the book of Galatians, I think it's out of Acts 14 that the, book of, the letter of the Galatians was written. Because these antagonizers were coming to tell them to know the gospel of grace is this. And Paul's like, no, the gospel of grace is this. And it's for everybody. Nobody's left out. And nobody's more special. We're all joint heirs, sons of God. So now we have Jewish sympathizers that are wanting to pick up stones. You have a crowd wanting to pick up stones. And they stoned Paul. They hit him with the rocks. It wasn't like they went and Paul was really good, you know, like the Matrix or something, you know. He was just going to, he, he didn't put on a show. And they were like, oh, wow, look, we're throwing rocks and they're missing him. They struck him. They thought he was dead. They knocked him out cold. And they drug him out of town. And what did Paul do? He walked back in. Spent another day there. I'm like, where is the adrenaline and the courage of our faith? Some of you have a, a, a co-worker at a desk nearby, and you've one time said Jesus and got a quick little, and you've never gone back. I mean, do we have the truth of Jesus or do we not? Is it not good for everybody? Is it, not, is it not what people have been longing for? And I just want to ask us today in our church family, are we longing for it? Are we longing? Is Jesus fresh water? Is he bringing us life? Because if he is, when you talk about it to your friends, they'll know you're speaking from a posture of honesty. And it will feel fresh. It will feel like life. Now, there will be some that will antagonize and that will speak badly and will not understand. But we don't stop going back. And when finally Paul and Barnabas left, they went to another area. And we'll hear that they spent a couple of days there teaching them. And he says to a few, we're going to call you out. They brought them in and they laid hands on them to, to pray over them. And he says, you're now the elders and spiritually responsible for these people. And they left. They left knowing that there was controversy in the church already. Like there were people that were saying, you've got to get circumcised. And others are saying, no, we've got grace. And he just walked away from those elders and like, I know you got it. Days he had spent with them. Maybe weeks at best. They didn't get three-year seminary degrees. They didn't get seven-year seminary degrees like Catholic priests have to go through to become a priest in the Catholic Church. They didn't go away to four years of Bible college. They didn't even have four years of Sunday school. 
they immediately, after just a few days of talking to Paul and Barnabas, a few weeks of talking to Paul and Barnabas, at best a couple of months over a few periods of time as he was going in and around the area, were hearing about the hope of Jesus Christ that it came through the promises of Israel that they were very familiar with, that that was now turned towards the world, and he says, you got enough because it is Jesus' church, it's not yours. And we have a different a posture towards laying on a hand. Like when we established our Suibo church, our apostolic team, which is made up of my wife and I and a couple other couples, went over to West Baltimore on one of their first services, and we laid hands on George, and we laid hands on Jeff Thompson, and they were the two elders that were the initial core elders of that church. And we didn't lay our hands on them as a posture to say, we have authority over these two that now have authority over you. We laid our hands on them saying, God has set them apart to walk with you to maturity. Follow them. And now they've had to deal with some junk, so they've added like six more elders over there. Uh, because sometimes you just need other people to take some rocks, right? Um, but, the, but one of the benefits of what's happening here, and this is what I'm saying, because I know some of you are feeling personally challenged by my wife right now because everybody she sees is a growth community leader. <laughs> it's like, how about you lead a growth community? And you're like, who are you? <laughs> you're like, I'm Ellis's wife. Uh, oh, okay, you want me to do what? And then others of you are like, well, you, you want me to do what? Because what? She, she's just like, because you have Jesus. You got what you need. Because with Jesus comes the spirit of Jesus. We refer to him as the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit gives you wisdom. It gives you power. It gives you understanding. And it got the early church through a time when they didn't have a Bible. And we have the Bible. We have Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit. So what couldn't we not do? Let's have some high days. Let's get to some low days. Let's, let's, let's make this more exciting when we're stepping into life with one another and we're experiencing the joy of our salvation and other people are around us because they know that we're joyous about our salvation. And so when we get to this letter in Acts, we're finding that the early church was no just coasting ride. They were on something powerful and they believed it. And they loved people even when they rejected them. They loved people when it was difficult. And I want to come back to this. And Lana, put it up on there, that prayer and fasting slide one more time. I just want you guys to know this. This will get us to the highs and through the lows. Do we want to see miraculous healings in people's lives? Do we want to get through persecution? Do we want to experience joy and excitement? Do we want to know what to do with our life? If we can begin to develop these passions, I promise you we'll begin to see something moving through us, not just because the pastor says we're setting aside a week for prayer and fasting. I would love to find out that many of you are praying and fasting and then we don't even know about it because you are realizing that, Father, my life right now feels aimless or my life, I feel I'm experiencing so much pain from other people. I need to make sense of it, God. And you stop talking and you let him help you. Or, Father, right now I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing this education, but what do you want me to do with my life? And we stop talking and we let him shape us. There's so much that God wants to do in and through us because he doesn't want us to just wait for heaven someday. He wants us to make an eternal difference now. So let's pray together.